Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, today we have on David G. Myers. He's a social psychologist and professor of psychology at Hope College. His articles have appeared in dozens of scientific periodicals and magazines from science to scientific American. He's also the author of more than 15 books, including psychology's most widely read textbook, which has sold more than 8 million copies worldwide and general interest books, including Intuition, Its Powers and Perils. His newest book, available now, is called How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind. Welcome, David, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Alan, for welcoming me. <laughs> Absolutely. So as we usually do, we're going to start off with a passage in this case from David's book. So David wrote, psychological science has taken some body blows of late with famous findings challenged by seemingly by seeming failures to replicate them. The problem isn't just that some prolific researchers fake data and that some and and that the famed psychologists David Rosenham and Heinz, and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Heinz Eisnick, uh, have been accused of doing likewise. Mm -hmm. Every discipline has a few self-promoting deceivers and more who bend the truth to their side. And it's not just the critics arguing that a few celebrated findings, such as the tribalism of the renowned Stanford prison experiment and, robbers and the robber's cave experiments were supposedly one-off stage-managed happenings, or that some findings of enormous popular interest, brain training for older folks, implicit bias training programs, or teaching two learning styles all produce little enduring benefit. Mm -hmm. The problem is that certain other findings have not been consistently reproducible. The effects of teachers' expectations, power posing, willful depletion, facial feedback, the feeling, uh, feeling the face you make, and wintertime depression, aka seasonal affective disorder, have often failed to replicate or now seem more modest than widely claimed. Moreover, the magnitude and reliability of stereotype threat, gro growth mindset benefits, and the marshmallow test, also known as showing the life success of four-year-olds who delay gratification, are, say skeptics, more mixed and variable, more modest than often presumed. Who boy, what's left? So I love that. And I want us to start there for the simple fact that well, first of all, I mean, obviously you're a psychologist, but then also for the fact that I feel like in terms of psychology research, it seems like it's not a new thing, but it has been sort of a problem that it's called a soft science. And essentially it's kind of, or has been for ages, kind of cast off to the side as opposed to something like chemistry or biology. And so here you now have this crisis or, you know, at least a seeming crisis where now people are saying, well, we see, you see, we've been telling you for years, you shouldn't take psychology seriously. How do you know all of that mental stuff? How do you know all of the stuff that's going on in people's minds? You know, a lot of the data is actually not verifiable. So what I love is in your book, uh, this is obviously a little bit toward the end, but I still think it's better off for us to start off there. You actually argue that it's not so simple, that there isn't such a replication or much of a replication crisis per se. So can you talk a little bit about that and why psychology is still important? Sure. Boy. Uh, and indeed, the whole book is an attempt to answer uh, by identifying a whole bunch of scientifically established uh, marvels of the human mind, phenomena of our behavior and our thinking. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, Leon, there are so many, first of all, there's been so much criticism of psychological science of late for phenomena that seem not to replicate or are even in the worst case fraudulent. That's mm -hmm. a problem with every discipline, but that's how science progresses. Uh, it's like climbing a mountain. We go up, but then we kind of drop down and then we go up again. Uh, we have our disappointments. We have to take back some findings. I author a textbook, as you mentioned, uh, that covers the whole field of psychological science. So you might ask, in response to these failures to replicate these various studies, how much have I had to take out of the textbook in new editions? And the answer is almost nothing. That is, mm. what you and your listeners studied in introductory psychology is still intact. Pavlov's phenomena of conditioning still are intact. Uh, what we've learned about sleep and dreams, about memory and learning, thinking of language, sensation, perception, the whole corpus of that body of knowledge given us by psychological science is still alive. And thus, I mean, I had to, in response to uh, one big article that looked at a uh, hundred different studies that it tried to replicate and found that about half of them had trouble replicating. What did that do to our text? It, it led to a change in one half sentence. Wow. So, so basically, there's what's left is everything. And there's so much to celebrate. And that's why I'm excited about 
reporting on psychological science and the wonders of our humanity, because there is so much that's solid and well-established. Yeah. And so the first thing that comes to mind, I think usually for a lot of people is Freud. And we tend to think that Freud has been almost completely debunked. So people would say something like, well, you know, there's no such thing really as an Oedipal complex and the, the unconscious. Like, what is that? You know, this little uh, kind of ghost in the machine, so to speak, that doesn't exist either. But you would argue that that's actually not the case. And there's something called dual pro or a dual processing model of the mind. Right. So even though, yeah, so even though it's not the same thing as maybe Freud would have posited, it's not actually that far off either. So can we start there? Sure. So, I mean, if we talk about some of Freud's ideas, uh, psychosexual development of young children, uh, you know, that hasn't really passed muster too much. What about the big idea of repression, that painful experiences we banish from consciousness? That idea doesn't pass muster either, because you have a horrible experience, a traumatic experience in wartime. You witness the death of a parent. You have a, a tragic experience because of a natural catastrophe. You're haunted by those memories. You wish you could repress or forget them. Uh, so repression doesn't pass muster. But Freud's probably biggest idea is that much of the mind is unconscious. It's out of sight. It's beneath the surface. Uh, it's what we now in contemporary psychological science call implicit, referring to our attitudes and our memories, which may be conscious and explicit, but to a very large extent, they're also unconscious, automatic, and implicit. And there's a whole science exploring those. That's not Freud's unconscious, which was seeding with aggression and sexuality. It's a different sort of cool unconsciousness uh, of uh, where information is processed. But Freud was right. The unconscious mind is huge. Mm -hmm. And David, can we talk a little bit about that? So what is dual processing in sort of layman's terms? Like what would that actually look like? So what is it that we're actually taking in and how would that sort of manifest in terms of our decisions and behaviors just overall? Sure. That's a great question, Leon. And 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 you can sort of think as uh, there's a high road and a low road to the human mind. The high road being what is deliberate and conscious and intentional and the low road being the other level of processing of information, which, by the way, Daniel Kahneman, in one of the great psychology books ever written, Thinking Fast and Slow, it's really about those two tracks of information. So to give you a practical example, one phenomenon that that I it just blows me away, uh, explored by a University of St. Andrews uh, colleague uh, that I got to know when on sabbatical there, is a phenomenon called blindsight. It's the tendency of some people who are blind and have no conscious awareness of what is in front of them to nevertheless act as if they could see to, when walking down a hallway, avoid an object that's in their path that is unseen to them. Or when asked to take an envelope and put it into a slot that's at a particular angle, will say, I don't know where it is. I can't do it. We'll guess. And then they'll nevertheless get it right uh, mm. most of the time, suggesting that there's what they call sight unseen, some unconscious information processing in the visual system that's not accessible to consciousness. So that would just be one example. And then we have other examples, of course, of implicit memory. I mean, my father, for example, was one of those who because of a brain bleed late in life in his 90s, lost his ability to form new conscious memories. Uh, and so we could tell him what we were what we were doing for dinner. And five minutes later, he would ask what we're doing for dinner. Or I had to tell him eight different times that his brother-in-law had died. And he each time he was shocked by the news. And yet such people can form implicit memories. They can learn new skills. They could learn potentially how to play a block stacking game or how to play golf or something like that, and yet have no knowledge that they have this memory. So clearly there's an information processing system that's operating that's very large beneath the surface of conscious awareness. Memory is then occurring on two tracks, uh, conscious and unconscious. And I, I, I should stop here, but the same could be said to be true of attitudes as well, including racial attitudes. There's both conscious prejudice and then there's implicit kind of unconscious automatic knee-jerk biases. And that's in some what we call dual processing. We have a two-track mind. So there's a little tutorial for you, Leon. 
That's actually very interesting that uh, you went there uh, as far as um, implicit bias goes. Um, In your book, you do talk about how implicit bias training doesn't necessarily work. And uh, is it possible maybe you could speak more to that? Like what what could actually maybe um, help us to maybe change those biases, if not some sort of training or or seminar? And then also just as a prelude to that, can we please just actually just state what implicit bias actually is, just in case people haven't heard of that term before? Oh, sure. So it's just a it's a kind of automatic knee jerk prejudice that operates kind of unconsciously as opposed to with conscious intention. And kind of two points, uh, I think, are pretty well accepted now by researchers in this field. One is that implicit bias is real. Uh, And I don't want to diminish that for a moment. So people, uh, 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 a police officer may, for example, if a person of another race is holding an object in their hand, be likely to interpret that object as a gun rather than a phone and thus to react inappropriately and automatically and instinctively without really intentionally thinking about what they're doing. That would be implicit bias. It's real. So given that it's real, Starbucks and other corporations have, as a part of their diversity uh, training programs, undertaken implicit bias training to try to educate people about this, to cure them of their implicit bias. The implicit bias researchers say, Ah, I wish it were. I wish it worked, but it's not that easy to get rid of implicit biases, and so the training programs are largely seen to have been not real effective. And so the solution seems to be for organizations rather to create structures and policies and procedures that minimize bias without having to trust people's not having implicit bias. Mm-hmm. So and, and and is that because essentially when you're asking a person like, hey, are you racist? That person is like, no, what are you talking about? Of course, I'm not racist. I don't have any of these terrible beliefs. But obviously, you know, the kind of knee jerk activities show otherwise. So is it that, you know, on the surface, they already agree with the training programs, which is why they've been pretty ineffective? Yeah. And by the way, even Daniel Kahneman has said the implicit cognitions that he talks about in his book knowing about them doesn't mean he doesn't experience them. I mean, we all experience them. It's part of our human nature. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I can, I can say I'm not racist. And maybe that's true in the sense that I don't intentionally harbor ill will towards somebody of another race. But I may still be automatically and unconsciously sometimes uh, influenced by my own implicit biases and by feelings I have in particular situations or anxieties I have in particular contexts because of implicit biases that are at work. Uh, Say someone were very interested in training themselves to have a sort of a a different implicit response, right? Like to, to alter their implicit bias. And let's say it's not in a, in a corporate environment uh, where maybe their behavior could be shaped by, you know, certain policies that may be enacted by that company. Um, Is there anything else that maybe we can do or the everyday person could maybe do to try to, to alter that, that bias in some way? Yeah. Uh, So one thing we know is, uh, Equal status intergroup contact tends to be an antidote to both implicit and explicit prejudice. I just saw a new study uh, out of South Africa where universities have been integrated and white South African students who are paired with uh, a black or colored South African roommate uh, tend over time to have improved racial attitudes. Uh, And it just kind of, you're... when your relationships in your day-to-day and your friendships in, uh, include that, uh, uh, people of another race, uh, it makes a difference. I have, I don't know if you can see in the background uh, over my uh, shoulder here, uh, my one grandchild happens to be African-American. And so for mm-hmm. me, just having an African-American member of the family uh, helps, I think, uh, I hope, uh, reduce or moderate or restrain my implicit bias. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, so con- friendly equal status contact where we simply practice uh, uh, cordial, cooperative, uh, loving relationships with people matters. Mm. 
Yeah, and you also mentioned literature and film as well, which seems to be really helpful, especially if you're living in an area where it's not very multicultural. It seems to have really worked really well with kids, uh, especially in reading uh, like children's books about different yeah. types of communities, ethnicities. Sure. It was, you know, what's so interesting. There was, I remember. Um, have you guys read Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad? No, well, I'm whatever. familiar with the title, but I haven't read it. Oh, okay, but... so Apocalypse Now, you know, the, obviously, you know, the movie, right? So it's based on that book. So it's not exactly because it's in the Vietnam War, but it, the, the book is pretty much the foundation of the film, right? So there was a book called um, When Things Fall Apart. And so Things Fall Apart was essentially the response to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So I remember reading about this in a literature class in college, and I really loved it. And here's why. So Heart of Darkness essentially depicted the African people as just like completely tribal savages. So the not to spoil it for everybody but i mean you know this book is ancient at this point so the book ends essentially with the main character and he's like uh like the god of this tribe and essentially uh like they're all barbaric and he's he's about to be killed and he says the horror the horror and you know essentially it's a racist book so when people read it they're like oh my god i would never want to go to africa this is horrendous so of course things when things fall apart was written it was written um and i think the uh main character's name was a conquo so it was written essentially about african tribalism and about a specific african tribe and essentially it was about how colonialism came in and essentially the imperialist powers came in and took over and how they wanted to impose Christianity on them. And you kind of get to see that these people are exactly like these colonial masters, the overlords or whatever you'd want to call them. And so Okonkwo as a kind of, let's say the general of the tribe had similar problems to the kind of the white general. And then the religious principles were actually very similar to the Christian principles where they believed in the single God, although that single God had kind of like its different manifestations, but uh, essentially the Christians in the book accused them of poly um po what's the word not polyamory uh, polytheism. Oh my God. Polythe wow, I was going to say polyamory. Yeah, so polytheism, right? And then the Africans are like, no, we're not, we don't believe in multiple gods. We believe in the supreme being. And all of these are just manifestations of it. So essentially through this book, and I mean, it's mostly written for like children and adolescents and teenagers, but the idea is you get to see as a challenge that people in different sort of countries, different tribes, you know, kind of, so to speak, they're very similar to what you're actually encountering in the day-to-day -day with, in this case, with white people. So what I love about literature is, again, on the one hand, you have propaganda. I don't know if you know I would call it that like heart of darkness but then on the other hand you have this great book like things what we call things uh, when things fall apart and essentially you see that there's a sort of commonality there amongst us that makes us all human and yes religion happens to be one of them sure and so you can have in a sense vicarious experiences that are also meaningful uh film and theater by the way as well there's just a some new research out I shared with my theater colleagues on how uh, attending and witnessing and experience things in a theatrical context can increase people's empathy for the context that they're that they're witnessing. So mm -hmm. good point. And Harry Potter, I gather, has done this for children by giving them vicarious experiences of uh, exposure to different people. Mm -hmm. Alan, did you learn anything from Harry Potter? I've actually never read it. Um, well, this is going to be a very strange point. I, I'm not sure how we got to Harry Potter, yeah. but... Yeah, in the seventh book, if I remember correctly, uh, so there's this one there's this one moment in the book where uh, Voldemort is is speaking and everyone can hear them in in his head, and uh, it, it hurts to hear him speak, and the way that they kind of treated Voldemort in the book, I don't know, uh, it, it felt allegorical as if they were referring to him like as not just him as the character but as if he was like this voice in their head kind of like the ego mm. kind of pestering them and mm -hmm. uh it, it, it would hurt them to you know give into this voice or identify to this with this voice and mm -hmm. uh that was very interesting and then i suppose harry potter having to sort of conquer voldemort uh or you know or the ego essentially in order to you know win and, mm. and save the day essentially uh it was interesting. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's exactly what uh, they were trying to portray in the book, but mm -hmm. um, for some reason, they made me think of that when reading it. And so it impacted me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, and David, and in terms of in terms of racial issues, what is Harry? Because I remember again, I haven't read it. So, oh, uh, what does Harry Potter actually sort of you know kind of profess? No, I, I haven't read Harry Potter either, except I know it, it's been credited mm -hmm. for the diversity that's built into the book and for influencing children in a positive way.
No, very interesting. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, because you know, when we're thinking about like implicit bias training, it's very easy just like Kahneman in some way to feel defeated about it, where you're thinking, well, if it's implicit, it's kind of, it seems like you can't access it. Because if on the one hand, the person is saying, well, I don't really hold these beliefs and they consciously believe that they don't. But then on the other hand, they're obviously doing these things that they're in some ways kind of unaware of, or at the very least probably yeah. rationalize away. So it can easily make you feel defeated. So it's great that obviously these strategies are there. Yeah, because yeah, and, and, yeah. and, and that's not to say that consciousness prejudices are easily overwhelmed right by the way there's some new research out on the difficulty of getting people once they come to believe something to unbelieve it mm-hmm. and these researchers find it's easier to persuade some people of something like uh, michelangelo's david is in venice then once they believe it to persuade them to unbelieve that and to believe something else uh, and we've seen that in history. So, uh, I mean, one example that comes to mind is we were persuaded to undertake the Iraq war to get rid of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, which the UN's weapons inspector said didn't exist. Americans in survey said they're for the war so long as those as that's the rationale and not otherwise. Well, we went in, we went to war, turned out the weapons of mass destruction didn't exist. So now were we opposed to the war? No, we still believed in it. It's hard to unbelieve in the war once we believe in it. But now we have a new justification. We say it was to get rid of this evil Saddam Hussein, which wasn't the rationale beforehand. So even conscious beliefs uh, when rationally attacked, you know, the vaccines work. Uh, COVID is real. uh, the 2020 election was not fraudulent. Uh, vaccines do not cause autism, so forth. It's very difficult to disabuse people of well-formed beliefs once, once, once they've committed themselves to those. Mm-hmm. What's the mechanism that explains that? How come? Because it would seem, you know, if a person is being completely rational, they would think, oh, okay, yeah, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Great. You know, this is sort of a way for me to adapt to my environment. So why do you think it's so hard for us to do that? Well, I mean, there's several things that work here. One is the amazing power of repetition. When you hear something over and over again, vaccines cause aut- uh, autism. Uh, the election was a hoax, you know, or, or, or it was fraudulent. Uh, and that's repeated and repeated and repeated. People tend to believe, first of all, they tend to believe what they hear. We call it the truth bias. We're naturally disposed to believe what others say. That's adaptive in our ancestral history. Others are a valid source of information. And when something's repeated over and over again, it becomes more fluent. It slips in more easily, and it's harder to forget. So repetition is one thing. And then, of course, there's other mechanisms like confirmation bias, which is making it into the public awareness now, the tendency to seek out information that confirms rather than refutes what we believe. So if we want to test our beliefs, we could test them by trying to disprove them, but we're more likely to test them by seeking evidence that confirms them and usually seek and ye shall find such evidence. And that tends to sustain them. And then there's another phenomenon that I cut my eye teeth on, and that is group polarization, my eye teeth in social psychology. What we would, what we did in our long ago experiments is bring people together who share common attitudes. We talked about race, so it could be racial attitudes. So we group high prejudice people uh, with others who share their views and low prejudice people with others who share their views. And then we have them discuss some racial issues. And we find that at the end of that discussion, they're even farther apart, the high versus the low prejudice, than they were at the beginning. And when we did this research, did little did we expect that this group polarization phenomenon, as it's called, would be, in a sense, put on steroids by social media and cable television and all the uh, mechanisms that allow us to then find and isolate ourselves with others of our tribe to talk within our groups and to become more extreme in our views and to have stronger antipathy towards others. Um, and thus to, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, those are repetition, confirmation bias, and group polarization are among the phenomena that help that helps misinformation take root and then deep root and be very difficult to change. 
And what do you think? I'm just curious. This is not exactly in your book, but I am curious because I'm sure you've heard of it. So I want to know what you think. What do you think about the explanatory power of something like ter terror management theory that essentially says that the reason why we're so polarized or, or not to say the reason, but at least it becomes much more likely when we become more aware of our death. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, the idea is that the sense of one's mortality essentially increases polarization and hostility to outer groups. Uh, Leon, I'm impressed with your knowledge of psychological science. Uh, uh, that it was inspired by a book by Ernest uh, Becker having to do with a fear of death and death yeah. anxiety. And Alan's, I Alan's was... favorite book. Yeah, oh, oh, really? I, I mean, I thought, I mean, when I first heard of that, I thought, oh, that sounds awfully kind of Freudian. But you know what? There's a whole solid field of very good research done by very credible social psychologists on terror management. That is on how people deal with um, the anxiety rega uh, regarding their awareness of their own mortality. And so if you put them in situations that remind them of their mortality and their eventual death, uh, it does have effects on their thinking. So I, my, my short answer is the terror management uh, research is very credible, uh, and I, I'm impressed by it. Yeah, so we actually had Sheldon Solomon on, one of the authors. Oh, yeah, co yeah well, he's yeah. one of the he's one of the three great researchers of that, Tom yeah. Zinsky and Sheldon Solomon. Yeah, such an yeah. amazing guy. One of our favorite episodes. I think we went for almost two hours chatting with him about it. Uh, oh dear, yeah, one okay. of our longest episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. good stuff. I have great respect for him. Yeah, good. I, I, good. Go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, and now so now tying it into your chapter on death, which I actually was really amazed by. So this is something I didn't know. Do you want to say it? Go ahead. Oh, so uh, it, it's interesting that uh, I mean, it seems to be that uh, people who uh, contemplate death, it, it seems to be so terrifying. But to those that are actually dying, that that I mean, not everyone, but it seems to be that a lot of them have sort of a different perspective on that. I found that very interesting. Uh, uh, could you maybe uh, speak on that? Uh, some of the perspectives that maybe some people who are actually experiencing, you know, uh, real potential death, like cancer sure. patients. Yeah, yeah so, very so counterintuitive. Yeah, it was to me too. That's why I report on it. So it's one of those curiosities and marvels of the human mind, as the subtitle of this little book says. So we've known for a long time that that there's reasonable stability to what we call subjective well-being, happiness and life satisfaction across the lifespan. Tell me somebody's age, and I don't have much of a clue as to how happy and contented they are with their lives. We also know and have known that human beings are pretty darn resilient. And so bad things happen, and boy, they hurt for a time, but we adapt to them uh, and we recover if we don't get the job we wanted, if we get rejected by uh, in a relationship, if we get a bad grade on an exam, it's we, we're depressed, but usually, you know, for a few days maybe, uh, and then we're resilient. So we know all that, but what about approaching death itself? What Amelia Goranson, a creative researcher did is ask people to imagine that they were somebody on death row about to have their life ended or a terminal cancer patient reflecting on their lives and their emotions. And she invites people to write little blog entries or diary entries as if they were such a person. Their entries are grim, depressing. You know, I approach the end of my life and it's just terrible. I'm, I'm only gonna live a few more days and so forth. And I mean, it just, they imagine depressing scenarios, but if you look at the journal entries and the final statements of people who are dying of cancer or who are about to be executed, they're mostly respect, uh, reflecting gratitude for uh, people that have cared for them, uh, you know, a, a sense of completion of their life as they approach the end. It's uh, she, she concludes her research by saying, I happen to have this quote in front of me. Death is more positive than people expect. Meeting the Grim Reaper may not be as grim as it seems. Um, and so, you know, we as we we may have terror to think, contemplate our own death down the road. But as an older person, I find that somewhat reassuring to think that when I get to that time, maybe I'm not going to be terrorized, actually. Yeah, that's really amazing. And because I, you would think that death is sort of the ultimate uh, 
uh, not just the ultimate end, obviously, because duh, but it's also like kind of the ultimate trigger in terms of anxiety. When, you know, anybody thinks of anything that makes them, uh, let's say, kind of afraid, it all can be sort of summed up in terms of being afraid of one's mortality. Like if you're afraid of your home being burglarized, if you're afraid of getting sick, uh, if you're afraid of, I don't know, uh, let's say some sort of catastrophe, like climate catastrophe, if you're afraid of a terrorist attack, etc. It all comes down to death. But essentially what your research shows is that at least for some people, I mean, we obviously probably can't generalize it, but at least for some people, they respond way better to the actual, maybe not initially, but at least yeah. over time, they respond way better to it than, you know, might have, we might have, uh, again, yeah. yeah, yeah and, uh, go uh, ahead, Alan. Yeah. Um, no, and I just wonder uh, what what exactly is going on there. I mean, if I if I had to, I guess, think about it, I, I wonder if just the the prospect of death is just such a grandiose thing that to form some sort of conceptualization of, you know, uh, how what it's going to be like once it's already there and uh, all that. It, it almost be, feels like meaningless. You, you almost um, sort of discard that that need to sort of. Um, exactly even understand what's happening on what's going to happen rather because it's 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 so uh ineffable right and, and mysterious yeah. and, and then it makes you sort of think just back on your life and the things that you're yeah. actually grateful for that's a, that's a good point and uh, two other observations one this isn't just on a few case studies i mean she has a very large sample and so i mean this seems to be a pretty universal phenomenon i mean i'm 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 persuaded by the size of her sample. But let's remember what it's not. I'm, and I'm just thinking on my feet here right now. But it's not somebody bursting into your studio right now, pointing a gun at you and threatening the end of your life, in which case you'd be terror struck. It's people who have had months to get used to the idea mm -hmm. and accommodate their thinking to their mortality and as they approach the end. And often when, when, when very emotional things happen, a lot of the work of that emotion and a lot of the dread and everything is processed well in advance. Um, as it is when a spouse, let's say, is slowly dying of Alzheimer's disease or something like that, the grief is often processed over time, you know, in advance of the actual death, as opposed to a sudden heart attack death, in which case the grief is more concentrated and intense. Right. Uh, also, that's just a, that's the point I'm speculating. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I mean, I also love that idea. Somebody who's terrified of dying, uh, it kind of lets me, it gives me a sense of hope knowing that like once the day comes, whenever that is, I will essentially at some point adapt to it. Because I would say a lot of my unfortunately hypochondriac symptoms are because I don't think I'd be able to handle my own death. So now, you know, thinking about it and obviously reading about it, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe once something happens, I'm, you know, I'm going to be able to say, okay, you know what? This isn't so terrible. I mean, everybody dies, yada, yada. Yeah, and and I don't want to say that everybody reacts the same because there's yeah. with everything there's individual variability, and I suspect that some people have deeply held religious convictions that give them a hope that this is a portal into uh, another life or you know a a, a a future heavenly existence or sure. whatever it might be as opposed to extinction. Right. Because that's always the question for atheists. So like I'm an atheist and I would always ask myself like, oh, my God, like what's left after this? You know, like, is this it? Uh, what's going to happen after I die in terms of like my body or, you know, my consciousness or whatnot? And really, I don't believe anything. So I think it's just, you know, kind of like what it was with, before you were born. So in a way, there's some a little bit of envy there for religious people, because it's nice to think that, you know, your soul lives on and in some ways you'll be reunited with people. So, again, you know, for me, it was like, oh, so for me, it was very black and white. I thought that these were really two, the only two options. Options. So you essentially you're you're okay because you believe in some sort of spiritual realm and you're able to kind of cope with it and that's sort of you know the serenity you get from I would say delusion um, and then you know kind of on the other end there's just a complete sort of bleakness where you're thinking to yourself oh my god there's nothing and I have to kind of face reality and all its rawness but I love that your research says that it's no it's probably not that simple and I assume some of the people in those blogs are essentially atheists or agnostics and don't necessarily oh. believe it yeah there's no well, I, I could imagine for you as, as an atheist, Leon, you might be anticipating an experience like what I had three weeks ago when I was three hours under general anesthesia to receive a cochlear implant. Mm -hmm. Namely, uh, you get wheeled in and suddenly it's just you're just blank. Yes. I mean, it's nothing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, it wasn't terrible. While the surgery went on, I didn't feel a thing. I mean, it was just I was absent. Yeah. Uh, 
And of course, but in this case, I was resurrected, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've always liked the kind of Epicurean comparison to sleep where, you know, the idea is like, you know, are you afraid of going to sleep? No, probably not, you know? Right. So yes, there's a finality to it, which is obviously different, but even still, it's still just like sleep. I mean, you're unconscious at that right. point. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then so uh, mm -hmm. now to move on to another idea. So obviously you are the the founder of the essentially the Lake Wobogan. Wobogan? How do you pronounce it? Wobegon. Wobegon. Wow, I was off. The Lake Wobegon effect, right? So can you tell us about that and how you came to it? Well, yeah, I, I guess I gave it a name in an article one time long, long ago, but it's, it's a reference to the self-serving bias phenomenon. Of course, in Lake Wobegon, that's the place where all the women and everybody is above average. Uh, and that's sort of how people view themselves. And we have... Uh, this phenomenon that we know is self-serving bias, which is kind of a psychological psychological science version of of the deadly sin of pride. And it comes to us in two forms. One is the tendency of people to think that on any subjective, socially desirable dimension, they're better than average. So compare yourself to the average driver. More than 90% of Americans think they're better than the average driver. Mm -hmm. What about ability to get along with others? In one college board survey of several hundred thousand people taking the test, like 98% of students thought they were better than average in uh, the ability to get along with others. Mm -hmm. uh, what about in morality or ethics? Again, everybody thinks they're, virtually everybody thinks they're better than average. And so uh, again, if it's a subjective, socially desirable dimension, we think we're better than average. Uh, and of course, oh, and by the way, this has implications when, salary raises are handed out and the average employee gets an average raise, mm -hmm. but the average employee thinks they're better than the average employee. They're going to have a lot of probably mostly unhappy, dissatisfied people who feel like they're not being justly rewarded. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. that's that's one version of the, of the phenomenon. The other is how we explain to ourselves good and bad things that happen to us. When good things happen, get a high grade on an exam, uh, a sales call goes successfully, uh, you succeed in a relationship, uh, people tend to attribute that to themselves, uh, to, that is to credit themselves. But when things go badly, low graded on an exam, you fail on a sales call, uh, fail in a relationship, you tend to, to make what we call an external attribution or explanation of that to shuck the blame. And so, the tendency of people to make internal attributions for good events and external attributions or explanations for bad events is the other version of self-serving bias. And together they form what we could call, uh, I suppose, the Lake Wobegon effect, the tendency to think that, hey, we're all better than average. Uh, and that self-serving pride, by the way, serves a positive purpose if we believe in ourselves and we're optimistic and we think we can do it and we're better than average, we're more likely to venture out and succeed at things. But it can also lead into ill-fated relationships and conflict and international war and, you know, bad things happening too when you think you're more moral and deserving than other people and mm -hmm. that others are to blame for a problem in your relationship or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I ran on a little bit there, but that's, that's no. So please, this is great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've definitely, uh, I've definitely done this before. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, especially like uh, in a failed relationship or something like that. In the beginning, uh, yeah, I would maybe attribute it to maybe something the other person did, uh, but then I'd have to, you know, kind of wisen up a little bit and be like, okay, no, maybe, maybe it was me. Maybe something I did, and all of that, and uh, being being aware uh, of these sorts of biases can be very, very useful. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. By the yeah. way, a, a Princeton researcher, Emily Pronin, has even found uh, it, most people think they're more humble that is less vulnerable to self-serving bias than others, uh, yeah. which is another form of self-serving bias in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so I can't win. <laughs> I, 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 I really identified with your speaking of since we were on the topic. So uh, speaking of pride, uh, I really identified with your chapter on pride. So uh, last year, I actually wrote an article on pride. So I pretty much uh, kind of touting its benefits, essentially saying that we needed more pride rather than less. Uh, and I essentially compared it to narcissistic pride, which is really different from what I would call kind of more uh, like healthy perfectionism or whatever, for lack of a better term, healthy pride. But interestingly, even then I kind of came around. Uh, so 
uh, we had philosopher Mark White on the show earlier. I think it was in May, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, and we talked about what worthiness was according to Thor, the Marvel comic. And so, according to Mark, he was saying he was saying essentially that pride is something that's kind of replenished on a daily basis, where you kind of go to sleep feeling like you're worthy, but then you wake up the next day having to prove yourself all over again, which is pretty different from the way I kind of conceived of as my kind of my version of pride, even though it's not mine per se. Uh, so the way I kind of conceived of pride was that essentially this is combination of all of the things that you've achieved. And then you would sort of counteract that with all of the sort of failures or, you know, kind of the things that you may be um, sort of fell short of. And then you kind of have an assessment as accurately as possible of self-esteem. And for me, that was a healthy sense of pride. But for Mark, he essentially said that like, well, so we didn't talk about that specifically, but he essentially said that like, no, you know, you're constantly proving yourself because you can't fundamentally be a good person all the time. It's just not possible. There's no, it's not black and white. It's not, you know, one day you just wake up and you're like, oh, I've got it. I'm a good person today. You know, because you're constantly challenged by temptations. Uh, you're constantly put in difficult circumstances and they may even be increasing. Uh, they may be difficult in different ways for you. Maybe one thing is a temptation as opposed to one thing, another thing that possibly isn't. And so essentially you're constantly kind of rejuvenating yourself or rejuvenating your sort of sense of self rather. Mm -hmm. And so what I loved about your kind of understanding of pride is that essentially it's a little bit like that where we shouldn't really feel proud, not in the way that at least I would have, or I, I did, the way that I conceived of it in the sense of like, okay, you know, here are these hard fought victories that you should always hang on to. That was really what important for me in the beginning of the year. But now I kind of see it differently where, you know, essentially that pride, even though I wouldn't, I still wouldn't call it a sin. I don't think it's a terrible thing, especially if not an excess, but you can certainly see now when you contrast your level of pride with someone else's, you would say something along the lines of like, uh, let's say, you know, you wake up every day feeling proud of yourself, as opposed to thinking you have to prove yourself. You can see how that can say, or that can translate into, well, I'm great. You're not. My group is great. Your group is not. So it's sort of interesting how pride on the one hand seems like this really great thing. And I mean, we would still, I think, need to find a balance with it because pride in itself is not terrible but it's interesting how in the when we look at the downside it's kind of really difficult to escape the fact that if you're proud that automatically means that you're better than someone else mm -hmm. right boy great observations and so there's some related concepts here i think of pride you've mentioned narcissism um humility would be kind of a, uh, how does that fit in and so a healthy pride i think you're saying uh, leon is uh, doesn't uh, required disparaging oneself. That's not what humility is. Uh, it could be recognizing one's strengths realistically. Yeah. Uh, and management, that strengths-based management is seeks to help employees recognize what their strengths and skills are, to celebrate those, to build on those, to accentuate those. Uh, but in a realistic way, that's not self-inflating, that doesn't overvalue self. Uh, at the same time, Humility isn't undervaluing self. It's not thinking less of oneself than one should. It's thinking of oneself less and mm -hmm. focusing more on others. By contrast, narcissism, which is kind of an unhealthy pride, if you will, uh, well, the scale that measures narcissism in psychological science experiments has items like, if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. I think I'm a special person. I mean, it's kind of, it's an inflated ego. It's an inflated self-esteem. And it's one that when punctured reacts with great anger and, 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 and so forth. And it's easy for me as I speak these words right now to think of a particular person who embodies uh, this trait. Uh, so uh, narcissism is not the same thing as healthy self-esteem. Uh, healthy self-esteem, which is a healthy pride, can coexist with humility, which is a realistic appraisal of one's strengths, but also an attitude that focuses beyond oneself, not on oneself, that focuses on one's calling, that attends to other people, and so forth. And so to me, that's kind of a vision or an understanding of healthy pride. And that's exactly what you were talking about before in terms of the Harry Potter book with kind of alleviating the ego or the, you know, grandiosity of it. Well, you know, again, as far as Harry Potter goes, it's been some time since I, I, I but, read it. But, but in general, concept, yeah. But I can definitely resonate with uh, with that sort of idea, right? I mean, uh, essentially, if, you, if you're uh, so egocentric, you're, you're concentrated on me, my needs. Uh, what do I want? What does this person think of me? Everything is in relation to me, essentially. But... Uh, when you when you kind of get out of that a bit, 
know, maybe ease up on, on that identification, essentially, you could actually have more resources to think about others, yeah. right? And and be of service to them, be be of value to them. Yeah. 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 And David, what I really loved is that essentially your version of narcissism is very different from what I'm used to in therapy. Or So I'm a therapist. So it's it's very different from our kind of conceptualization of narcissism, which essentially posits that it's an overcompensation for severely low self-esteem. So can you tell us a little bit about your research and essentially the belief that narcissists are what they seem to be? There's, uh, at least in your understanding, no underlying oh. alternative. Yeah. yeah I well, if, if you give somebody the narcissism scale and they score high, they're not going to score low on a self-esteem scale. So at least by our operational definitions, narcissism is the opposite of low self-esteem. It's it's inflated self-esteem, yep. but it's a fragile self-esteem. It's easily punctured uh, because it's exaggerated. Uh, and when punctured, it can yield uh, anger and contempt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then essentially what the tests show is that the person who's narcissistic actually does have a sense of superiority because it's sort of, um, right. it's, it's implicit and these are sort of quick responses. So one would think if there's an implicit sense of low self-esteem, what would happen is that a person would respond to, uh, or would indicate a sense of, uh, inferiority that it wouldn't, that, you know, it would be like a kind of mirage in some sense that there's this unconscious part of them, you know, whatever I'm using right. in kind of the Freudian sense, this unconscious part of them that says, Hey, 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 no, you're actually not special. You're a piece of shit. You're terrible, <laughs> right? But your research says, no, no, no. So the indicator is that they actually do think that they're these yeah, amazing and, people. And, and, yeah. and their parents may have raised them, always praising them, saying, you're the greatest, you're the best, you know, and they've grown up with that. As, uh, and so they may really believe it. Yeah, so amazing. And so just in terms of your research itself, like what would you say, uh, and this is a little bit more personal, what would you say are some of, or is some of, or actually, okay, what are some of, or if you have one kind of uh, main piece of, let's say, main piece of wisdom, or let me see, I could kind of conceptualize this. What would you say is sort of the most, for lack of a better term, what was the most important piece of research that you've kind of come across? Or even several forms, if you can't think of one. You mean in all of psychological science? Yeah, in all of psychology, yeah. What's sort of some of your favorites? Um, oh, boy. So some of the big ideas. I'm just going to mention some things in passing here. and We can sure. go back and pick up on any of them. So I'd say I'm very impressed by behavior genetics research, mm -hmm. which has shown us that we are formed by many, many genes, each having very small effect, but which aggregate to some large effects and which find shockingly that parental nurture has, and the shared environment that children in a home, like adopted children in a home, for example, share from having the same parents has remarkably little effect on their developing temperament, personality, and intellectual ability. Hmm. Uh, although their values and beliefs will be shaped by the home. So, hmm. I mean, that's one kind of shocking finding. I would say another thing that, uh, oh my, uh, uh, impresses me is, well, I've written a whole book on the powers and perils of intuition, and I mm -hmm. have, have a brief discussion of this, talking about what we were talking about earlier, how the implicit mind is capable of some remarkable things, and yet we're easily led astray to believe things that aren't true and to overestimate the powers of our intuition. I'm impressed by uh, our human tendency often to fear the wrong things. Yes, and I could give you give give you some great examples of that, and uh, and thus the need for critical thinking and for rooting our fears and our anxieties in reality on the basis of evidence and real data. Um, I'm uh, struck recently by research on what I call the the happy science of micro friendships, micro friendships, how reaching out to people. Uh, in small ways, by striking up conversations on a bus during a commute or with a barista at the coffee shop or uh, sending a gratitude note to somebody that has done something nice for you, the unexpected gratification that this provides for both the person who does the kind act and the person who receives it, that's just a, a, a new area of research that I'm fascinated by. But I could go on and on because I have 40 essays in this book and they're all about things that have fascinated me and that I think other people might enjoy knowing about. It's, it's interesting that you brought up uh, that particular um, uh, part of the book, uh, micro friendships. Um, there's actually a story in there 
um, I believe of um, uh, now I'm not sure if this was between you and another uh, gentleman or not, but essentially right. you saw somebody was having a a really horrible day and uh, no, 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 not a horrible day. Sorry. Uh, he was carrying flowers and I oh, think, yeah. right. Yeah, could, could you speak on that? That actually having read that, that actually kind of uh, got to me. Yeah. So yeah. what I did, I, 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 I uh, posted an explanation of this new research on what I call the power of micro friendships, so how reaching out to people can have unexpected positive uh -huh. effects. And I asked my Facebook friends if they had any such experiences. And I got uh -huh. all kinds of examples of people told how you know, incidental, spontaneous conversations uh, with people. Uh, uh, one person, I think the last example was somebody at a in a at a pharmacy counter or something like that and she struck up a conversation and learned that the man's uh wife had just been diagnosed with leukemia and they had this intimate conversation that just spontaneously happened and she spoke this kind word to him at the end uh and it was just i mean it was it was like practically bring you to tears reading this and, and this was just one of many examples that people volunteered a few of which i share along with the research mm -hmm. yeah uh, if i recall correctly um she noticed that he had flowers with them oh that's so right he, he said yeah, some, that's a, that's yeah, right and she said something along the lines of um you know oh whoever's getting that must be lucky and then he tells her that his wife that's has right. leukemia yeah Thank you, Ellen. You're remembering my story better than I am. <laughs> and no, because it's it's fantastic. It left an impression. And and this uh and what what happens is when he tells her that she has leukemia and she she's dying and got the flowers for her, uh, she of course felt saddened by it. But then she said something to him that uh, really got him emotional, which is, you know, um, your wife is uh, really lucky to have somebody who loves her as as exactly. much as you do. To 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 be with her uh, through all of this. And th that was very impactful as, as far as that goes. So that, that must have, and I think he uh, began to cry if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's such a big deal. You know, it's, it's a micro sort of interaction, a micro right. friendship, right. But I'll never see each other important. again, but something significant yeah. just happened there. And yeah. so, uh, and by the way, Nicholas Epley, the university of Chicago has done a lot of this research on what I'm calling micro friendships reaching out to people in everyday situations, to strangers. And uh, he finds that, uh, two things that are of interest. One, the the positive effect of that is so much greater than what people anticipate. So it's an unexpectedly, I mean, you'd think that would be good, but it's more good than you realize or than you predict. The second thing is it's good for introverts as well as extroverts. Extroverts more naturally do this. And you think this might be painful and awkward for introverts. No introverts at the end of the day having been coaxed into these experiences also feel happier wow, and so do those who receive the gift of their kindness yeah okay and then so we have to focus on behavioral genetics so i know a lot of people hate it because especially on uh, the left even though i do consider myself to be a progressive liberal but there are many people on the left who hate behavioral genetics i think they don't like the fact that sort of people are boxed into particular traits but uh can we actually talk about the research and how essentially that obviously the environment contributes a lot but yes there is still such a thing as a temperament and yes that temperament is mostly affected by the person's by parents by essentially your genes by where you come from Sure. So uh, I guess two observations right off the top of my head. One is, what are the, what's the nature of the studies that lead us to this conclusion, that lead behavior geneticists to, to conclude that um, that genetic variation, what we call heritability, which is variation among individuals on any given trait, like intelligence or temperament, is about 50% attributable to genes. And the other 50% is like, well, we don't really know what it is, but it doesn't seem to be parental nurture. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, there's a book, The Nurture Assumption by Judith Rich Harris, that is all about discounting the effects of parental nurture as uh, shaping people like a potter shapes clay. Mm -hmm. And instead, seeing genetics and peer influence as formative in shaping people. But wh what is it? Well, it's studies of adoptees who having grown up in the same home tend to be no more alike one another in their basic traits, like their cognitive abilities and their temperament and personality than are any two kids picked at random from the block. 
And then you have, of course, the twin studies that find that genetically identical twins are much more alike than our fraternal twins reared together also in the same under the same circumstance. And so those and even separated identical twins is as well known as I'm sure most of your listeners listening to this kind of intelligent podcast will have known by now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that that's uh, one observation. The second observation is this, Leon. So is this con- uh, conducive to conservative rather than progressive thinking? <clears throat> well, it depends what the topic is. If we're talking about intelligence, then progressives would want to emphasize the power of environment and of having uh, uh, investing in public education and so forth in ways that can promote intelligence. But I've written a book and engaged in a lot of discussion uh, with people and written a lot of articles on sexual orientation. One of my books has the is is subtitled "The Christian Case for Gay Marriage," mm-hmm. and one of the points I'm making is that sexual orientation is not a moral choice. Uh, all the research we have indicates it's a natural disposition uh, for the overwhelming majority of people, and most clearly so for males. And so, if People who are conservative can understand that this is a genetic predisposition that influences the brain that in interaction with the environment produces a natural disposition. It can help them empathize with and be more supportive of gay aspirations than if they think it's not genetic. Right, right. So, and then, yeah. so, so it, it, it depends what rate we're talking about, whether it's... Yeah. Whether whether appreciating genetics is conducive to a progressive or a conservative position. Right. And just to be clear, when we say it's the interaction between genes and the environment, we're not saying it's the upbringing that's affecting sexuality. What I think right. you're probably talking about is sort of what happens in the womb before the fact. Oh, yes, certainly pre and prenatal hormonal yeah. exposure. Uh, in the particularly the third to the sixth month are very important, too. I mean, that's part of that's part of the environment that is shaping the person. But I, 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 I give a nod to gene-environment interaction because genes always unfold in combination with in, environment. But the environment by itself is not shaping one's sexual orientation in any way that we know. Let me put it this way. I, I've, with, if, I sometimes explain this. If some new parents who just have a baby came to me and say, David Myers, you've read all this research on sexual orientation and what influences it tell me what can we do to influence the sexual orientation of our child (laughs) my honest answer would be after a lifetime of reading this research is that i don't have a clue of (laughs) anything you could do to determine the sexual orientation of your child as an adult (laughs) so just accept what it is right and then so, but how do we quantify, let's say, the impact of genes as far as the environment? How can we say, let's say, genes are 50% responsible for X trait, and then let's say something else is responsible for or the, the other 50% is responsible for the rest of it? Ah, well, that that now we get into the uh, the kind of the statistical technical mm-hmm. stuff of how you compute heritability, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, that and that's the beauty of twin studies where you compare like identical and fraternal twins and you can mathematically factor what are the different components that are influencing what the measurable trait is. Now, by the way, there's there's noise in the trait measure. And so you don't have a perfect measure of somebody's intelligence or somebody's temperament. Right. And so genetics, even if they were 100% determinant of that, aren't going to in a study, predict 100 percent because you because you have a noisy measure in what what you're measuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I love that. You know, it's like when we think about uh, we often tend to simplify. You know, what it means to be a human being, and I think it's much easier for us just to think about the environment as being um as being sort of not maybe the only factor, but the main factor because we like to think of ourselves as being in control. But people are really scared of just thinking about it in terms of genes, which I mean, honestly, the only thing you could really do if you don't want to have something wrong with your children is obviously just not have children. But I think for all of us, it's much easier just to think of the environment as this thing that's not only obviously within our control. 
control, but as the only thing that matters, which is why I think for the most part, people on the left, I mean, obviously, as you said, on the right too, but people on the left really, I think, struggle with this is because we like to think as long as we create a sort of socially just world, we will significantly reduce the probability of harm being done to our children or of our children sort of becoming or having these particular traits. Mm -hmm. If you think about mental health, we're thinking about particular diagnoses and it's not really that simple. Yeah. Catherine Page Harden, who's a yes. behavior geneticist at the University of Texas, has a new book, The Genetic Lottery, which yeah. is a, she's a very strong, committed behavior geneticist, but is trying to explain how this is entirely compatible with a progressive uh, uh, philosophy. And so the, the, the two aren't in competition with one another. By the way, just one going back to the technical note for a moment, mm-hmm. when we refer to the 50% heritability People often think that that refers to the extent to which my intelligence or personality or whatever is genetically determined. No, heritability is the extent to which variation among people is attributable to genes. Now, that mm-hmm. may sound like an esoteric difference, but to behavior geneticists, there's, it's, it's, it's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't say that, that your height, if you're six feet tall, that... Uh, four and a half that five feet of it is due to genes and one foot of it is due to environment uh, right. it doesn't it doesn't work like that right yeah su- super interesting all right so i mean i'm glad that we covered so many different topics and david i gotta say man i love your book i love the fact that it, the, the breadth the sort of the scope of it mm-hmm. is really incredible and, and i figured and i didn't really think that i would learn anything new from it i mean because in terms yeah, of just it's like, kind of your field yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I do this for a living. Uh, but you know, but I actually have. There were some things that really surprised me, especially the kind of uh, the aspect of narcissism that we talked about. I actually didn't see that one coming, especially as a clinician, because we're trained to think that narcissism is always an overcompensation right. for low self-esteem. So I love that you wrote it. I thank you so much for coming on the show. And then thank before so we wrap up, Alan, do you have final final questions for David? Oh yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and and of course buy the book, uh, where could we do that? Uh you could. Um have access to me and to anything I've done at davidmyers.org. All you have to do is spell Myers correctly. It's mm-hmm. David, that's the easy part. D-A-V-I-D-M-Y-E-R-S.org. Mm. And All right. uh, you can contact me. You can see links to anything and lots of free stuff online. Thank you for Excellent. asking, Ellen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much again for coming on. Hey, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you both so much for a stimulating <laughs> hour. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon, David. I hope you have a good night. Okay. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Once again, time flew. Yeah. All right. Uh, That was great. So if you guys want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter, where it's Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit hit the the bell bell on on YouTube. YouTube. And thank you so much again for watching and see everyone again next time. 